final that we'll ever not turn to Ezra again, but at least through our journey through Ezra this morning, um, this will conclude our time in it as we have systematically gone through Ezra. I believe this should be uh, sermon number 20, so right at five months we have uh, taken our time through, uh, through this book in the Old Testament. George, I meant to ask you, when did you, deplo- when did you leave us? Was it in July? July. So almost, almost George's whole time being gone, he has missed Ezra. So we're going to recap the whole book for you this morning So, uh, in our, our time through Ezra. So the question is, how do you recap uh, five months, 20 sermons worth of sermons into one? And the answer is, you just take a long time and you, you do it. Uh, kind of kidding. But this morning, our goal is to not just recap the book of Ezra, but to look at Ezra and to celebrate some things uh, that have happened in our time through Ezra. Uh, And if you remember, if you were here last week as we finished chapter 10, it did not end on a high note as Adam uh, finished up Ezra 10 for us last week. Uh, There at the very end, we'll just kind of start with uh, verse 44 there. All these had married foreign women. As 9 and 10 talked about intermarriage. And some of the women had even born children. So it gives this long list of folks who, uh, who had committed this sin of intermarriage. And it said, hey, these are the ones who have done it. And they've married foreign women and they've had children. The end. Uh, but that is, not, uh, that is not our full takeaway from the book of Ezra. Although we'll come back to this, this thought. So we're going to start with, uh, with that end in mind. And ultimately looking at the reality that there is much to celebrate as we think about the book of Ezra, this historical narrative. And so we want to take our time this morning to go back and look at some of these highlights of Ezra and rejoice in what the Lord has done. So three particular areas, the first of which we're going to start with this morning with the restoration of Jerusalem. I'll tell you where we're going. We're going to look at the restoration of Jerusalem. We'll look at the reformation of God's people. And then lastly, we're going to look at the role of Ezra in redemptive history. So taking a look at all of these things, uh, no particular text is going to anchor us this morning. We'll be kind of all through Ezra and then, of course, all through uh, the Bible itself. So as we look at the, the first thing we're celebrating through this historical narrative that we call Ezra, the first thing that we celebrate is the restoration of Jerusalem. If you go to, uh, to Ezra chapter 3, as we think about the restoration of Jerusalem, this is the big picture of what's happening in not just Ezra, but Ezra and Nehemiah. We've, we've said a couple times we're going to take a break in the month of December and look at Advent and celebrate our time uh, rejoicing at the coming of Jesus. But as we come back in January, we're going to pick back up in Nehemiah, which is kind of one unit, if you will, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so this is about the restoration of Jerusalem. We know the people of Israel have been in exile, and they are returning to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the holy city is being restored. There are three particular ways that we see the restoration of Jerusalem. The first was the rebuilding of the altar. So when you go to Ezra chapter 3, verse 3, I believe it is, it says, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, that they had offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. So the first thing that was rebuilt, the first thing that was restored as the people returned to Jerusalem was the altar itself. 
first thing that was rebuilt in Jerusalem was the altar. And this signified the returnees, the people of Israel who were, uh, who were leaving Babylon, who were being restored to this holy city. Uh, the first thing they cared about was the altar was the worship of God. They wanted to return not just to a city, not just as a people, but they wanted to return to the right worship of the Lord. It signifies their desire to do so. And building this altar was essential in worshiping the Lord. And if you remember as our time uh, several months ago, as we talked about, as we walked through chapter 3, we talked about the importance of the altar of the Lord to the people of the Lord. And as they rebuilt the altar, they reinstituted uh, part of the worship of Israel to their holy God. And the thing that would have been striking would have been all the blood that would have been associated with this altar. Uh, as the altar was built and the sacrifices were, were reinstated, the striking thing would have been the bloodshed on a daily basis as they came to worship the Lord and thank Him for their deliverance. And likely the onlooker would have been reminded of the need of blood for a sacrifice of their sins and the power of blood which would have pointed them to the coming Messiah. So as, they, as, the, as we look at the restoration of Jerusalem, we start with the rebuilding of the altar. Now we know even better today that the blood of lambs and bulls and goats and all the sacrifices on the altar never saved a single person. That we looked at as we walked through Ezra chapter 3, we were reminded that it is the person and work and the blood of Jesus that saves. And so our response to what Jesus has done is the same as the beginning of the restoration of Jerusalem. It is to worship. But then secondly, we see it is the rebuilding of the temple. So they, they first rebuild the altars. The first thing they rebuild uh, is they are brought back by uh, Zerubbabel. And then they turn their attention to rebuilding the temple. And you can see that succinctly in verse 10. It says in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And we see this loud cry, this loud rejoicing as they have rebuilt the temple. Now, the temple represents, just like the altar, the worship of God, but it represented a fuller return to the, pre to the prescribed worship of God. And that's important. It was the prescribed worship of God. They could, they could return to worshiping the Lord as God had commanded them, uh, ultimately through Moses. So by rebuilding the temple, Israel was able to worship the Lord in a way that they had not been able to do in previous generations. And so we see they've rebuilt the altar, they're rebuilding the temple, and now with this temple, several things could return. The sacrificial system could return, in which they were, as they were doing on the altar, they could have their burnt offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings and all of these offerings that could only truly be done in the temple. The high priestly role could return. We've talked about the role of the priest, especially uh, in Ezra as he was coming back. But the role of the high priestly of the high priest could return and all the things that he was engaged in in his daily rituals, and especially the day of atonement. And so the high priest could return doing the things as the Lord had commanded. Festivals and feasts, incense offerings, the bread of presents, tithes and offerings. They could gather in the Lord's temple and give as the Lord had instructed them. Public reading and the teaching of the law, prayer and worship, all of these things. They can now have a fuller experience of, of the worship that God had set out for the people of Israel. They can now rejoice in the formal, corporate, and genuine worship. 
And as we said as we walk through Ezra chapter 3, that there is a right and there is a wrong way to worship the Lord. And the people of Israel, through the rebuilding of the altar, through the rebuilding of the temple, they could now worship the Lord as He had prescribed. There is a right and wrong way to worship the Lord. We do not worship God on our terms. The people of Israel did not worship God on their terms. They worship the Lord as He has set out. And that's important for us to remember today as well. So as we look at the restoration of Jerusalem, we see the rebuilding of the altar. We see the rebuilding of the temple. But we also see the returning of God's people. So, you know, what good is the temple and what good is the altar if there are not there those to worship the Lord and bring sacrifices and, and, and worship Him for all that He has done? And this is how the book opens. When you go to Ezra chapter 1, we are reminded, even before Ezra shows up on the scene, we are reminded of the first group who returns out of exile. Uh, they have been in exile and captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And just as the Lord had promised, he delivers them out of exile and brings them back to Jerusalem with a very specific task to rebuild. So this is how the book of uh, Ezra opens up. And we see in the course of Ezra, we see not just one, but we see two waves of returnees. We see those who are led by Zerubbabel, and then we see those led by uh, Ezra who are returning to Jerusalem and they have very specific tasks that first wave of, uh, of Israelites they're rebuilding the altar they're rebuilding the temple and then as the all of these people come back to Jerusalem we see the return of God's people and then we're going to see the third wave finally in January as we look in Nehemiah as they come back to rebuild the walls but it was made clear as we walk through Ezra how much God cares for his people and provides for his people. He brought them out of Babylon back to Jerusalem and that didn't just bring them back to the land that was theirs, but he brought them back with fully outfitted with everything they needed to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the altar, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the walls, to reinstitute his worship, to be restored so the restoration of Jerusalem was fully done by the Lord. And yes, we see the Lord use Cyrus and use these Persian kings and he used the people of God. But he did all of the work. He did all the organizing. He made sure that it happened because God delivered on his promises. His promise to deliver the people of Israel back to Jerusalem and see its restoration. So it's been clear how much God cares and provides for his people. We see that. Uh, clearly in Ezra. The restoration of Jerusalem began with the rebuilding of the altar and the temple and the return of God's people. But let's turn our attention to God's people. Not only are we celebrating the restoration of Jerusalem, but secondly, we can celebrate the reformation of God's people, the reformation of God's people. And two things that inform the reformation of God's people. The first is a return to God's word. And we see Ezra embody this. We see that one of the themes of Ezra is this return to God's word. Go with me to Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10. One of my, I'll say, top 10 verses. I love Ezra 17. I don't think I was one who preached this text in our, uh, our first building in Calhoun. We uh, christened the stage. We should have done it on this one and we forgot as uh, terrible elders, but we should have written uh, should have written scripture all over the uh, platform here as we did in Calhoun. And I remember uh, in 2011, writing right here above the, or below the pulpit, uh, Ezra 7:10. It's a passage that is very dear. 
As you see in Ezra 17, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So you see the heart of Ezra right there in chapter 7, whenever he comes onto the scene, that his mission, his ministry, if you will, his role in this restoration of Jerusalem and the reformation of God's people is to return to God's word, to study God's word, to obey God's word, and to teach God's word. That is the heart of Ezra. That was the mission that Ezra set out to do. That kind of summed up his ministry as a prophet of the Lord to study, to obey, and to teach God's Word. And so when you look at the reformation of God's people, it starts with a return to God's Word. This was his mission. This was his ministry. And if there were to be any reform in Israel, and we know as you read through the Bible, as you read through the Old Testament, there is always a need for reform in God's people. And if there were to be any reform in Israel, if they were to look to the Lord, then God's word was essential. His commands, his statutes, his law was essential to know it and to obey it. There can be no reform without returning to God's word, whether then or now. And we see this even on display. We celebrated this last month with the Reformation celebration. Uh, the 2,000 years after the time of Ezra in the 16th century A.D., we see the Protestant Reformation. And Luther knew that in order for God's people to know the Lord as they should, they needed to be able to read and understand Scripture for themselves. Because you cannot have a Reformation of God's people without a return to God's Word. And thus we see the principle from the Reformation, sola scriptura, by scripture alone. And this doctrine holds that the Bible is the supreme authority in all matters of doctrine and practice. Ezra knew this. Luther knows this. Those who have been given a new heart know this, that we need God's word. If we're going to be a people who turn to the Lord and trust the Lord, we do so by his word. And not only was uh, and is the reformation of God's people founded on a return to God's word, but also we see the repentance of his people being a major part of the reformation of Israel. So not just a return to God's word, but a repentance of God's people. Uh, swapping over to Ezra chapter 9 and verse 4. And we see that this issue of intermarriage is what consumes the last two chapters of Ezra in which the, the people of Israel have taken wives for themselves um, uh, outside of Israel from the neighboring nations. And we see Ezra's response as a leader of the people. And he had been teaching God's word and teaching people to obey God's word. And now there are those in the camp who were not. And not only was Ezra distraught, we see as, uh, verse 3, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. And then verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. I fell upon my knees and spread up my hands to the Lord my God. So we see this, this attitude, this heart, this desire of repentance, not only of Ezra, but of the people of God. 
So the reformation of God's people starts with a return to God's word, but it includes the repentance of God's people. And this is what was taught by Ezra, to obey God's word. And whenever your life intersects God's word and it says one thing and you're doing another, there's only one response if you belong to the Lord. And that response is repentance. Coming face to face with God's word will lead anyone who has been given a new heart to repentance. That is a litmus test of believers. If it does not lead us to repentance, if we do not have a desire to repent, and we see in Matthew 18, we see this, this be fleshed out, that ultimately you're treated as an unbeliever because you do not have a desire to repent because God's people repent whenever they come face to face with God's word. And also it's the only way for an unbeliever to be saved is by turning to Jesus in faith and repentance through the power of his word. You cannot claim to love and heed God's word if you do not repent of your attitudes and actions that is contrary to God's word. So we see that in Ezra chapter 9. We see it all throughout God's word. The reformation of God's people then and now happens by return to his word and heartfelt repentance. So Israel needed a reformation. This was Ezra's task. God's people throughout history have needed a reformation that comes from his word and repentance. And then finally, not only are we celebrating the, the uh, restoration of Jerusalem and the reformation of God's people, but we also celebrate the role of Ezra in redemptive history. The role of Ezra in redemptive history. And this is, this is important. As we go through the Bible, we, we constantly are talking about redemptive history. And what is redemptive history? It is, uh, it is the, the story of Jesus. It is the story of the gospel. As I was telling our students this morning in Sunday morning Bible study, it is what we call the scarlet thread. It is the, the news of Jesus, the message of the gospel from Genesis 3 all the way to the pages of not just scripture, but the pages of history of how Jesus has always been about redeeming his people from the very beginning. And so we see the role of redemption throughout history. And so what is the role of Ezra in redemptive history? Three things, the first of which is this, the preservation of the law. The preservation of the law. We see a return to and a preservation of the law of God in Ezra. This was his desire, right? Going back to, to Ezra 7.10, his desire. He set his heart, it says, to study the law of the Lord, to do the law of the Lord, and to teach the law of the Lord, the statutes and rules, to Israel. So a preservation of the law. As someone kind of succinctly said, the importance of the law and the coming of Christ. As the Mosaic law was given in redemptive history as part of God's plan, its central purpose was to reveal God's character. The nature of human sin by imprisoning Israel under sin and also instruct how God would graciously redeem in priesthood and sacrifice. So this preservation of the law reveals God's character, reveals man's nature to sin and his plan to redeem man because we need a savior. So this redemptive history constantly points us to who God is, who man is and our need of a savior. And so for the law to serve its intended purpose, it had to be preserved throughout Israel's history, including the exile and the return to Jerusalem. So the preservation of the law was essential. 
for many reasons, but two specifically this morning. One was Jesus, he had to live under the law so that he might fulfill the law perfectly in a way that we cannot do. Matthew 5, 17 says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so we see clearly that Jesus lives under the weight of the law. He lives it perfectly in a way that you and I cannot do so that we might receive his righteousness through faith and repentance. So we see clearly that Jesus' role in fulfilling the law. And so it had to be preserved. And we see Ezra's role in that. He preserves the law. He points people back to the law. and says the law is good. And then secondly, we see the law was a tutor. The law was a tutor. I love this verse. We're going to turn to it. Galatians. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. If you ever want to know more about the law, Galatians is... Is a, uh, is a fantastic read in dealing with the law. Because as we think about this preservation of the law, we see in Galatians chapter 3, we'll start in verse, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. The word there is pedagogue uh, or tutor. It was our tutor until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under this guardian. For Christ, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. As many of you are baptized in Christ, have put on Christ. And we'll come back to the other uh, verse here in just a second. But we see the preservation, uh, we see the uh, the preservation of the law so that Jesus might fulfill it and live under it so that we might receive his righteousness, but also because it was needed in our own life to lead us and to ultimately show us the need for Christ. Once Christ came, it became clear that righteousness comes by faith in him and not by keeping the law on our own because we cannot. So we see the the role of Ezra in redemptive history, one, is for the preservation of the law. And secondly, is the preservation of Israel's identity. The preservation of Israel's identity. Why is that so important? Why is it so important for Israel to have their identity preserved? Because it's no longer about Israel. That we'll get to in just a moment. But ethnic Israel had a unique place in redemptive history. Go with me to Romans chapter 5. No one demonstrates this better, I don't think, than Paul in Romans chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, starting in verse 4. They are Israelites, speaking of ethnic Israel, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all blessed forever so as we look at the preservation of israel's identity we see that ethnic israel had a unique place in redemptive history the preservation of ethnic israel was of most important because the messiah jesus christ would be born a jew and we know that he comes from the line of judah and you can, as we'll celebrate advent in december we'll look at more of that but it was jesus who was a jew had a, so this line, this ethnic line, and we see 
that in uh, in uh, in Ezra's in Ezra's uh, shame and his whatever not his personal shame but his shame for Israel and verse and chapter nine verse two says that for they have taken daughters to be wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with peoples of the lands this was a sin this was an atrocity because it diluted the holy race of Israel ethnic Israel so the preservation of Israel's identity was important because the Messiah would be born a Jew. And we see this in a couple places. One, we see it in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of his peoples. And so we know the scepter, the reign, the rule, the kingdom would come from the line of Judah and was pointing to Christ. Now go with me real quick to Micah. Good luck finding Micah. We've not uh, spent time there yet. It's one of those minor prophets right before the book of Nahum, if my Bible drill serves me right. Micah chapter 5. I love Micah 5 too, as it's speaking of, of Christ here. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient days. So again, he's looking to this ethnic line of Israel that is ultimately Christ, who will be the one who comes in full as the Messiah, as our Savior. And so as we look at the preservation of Israel's identity the ethnic Israel was important to preserve the line for Christ. And not only was ethnic purity essential for the coming Messiah, but the preservation of Israel's identity points us to the unity and uniqueness of true Israel. The unity and uniqueness of true Israel. Go with me to Ephesians. A place we have been to a number of times, but it is so important for us to understand this this picture, this shadow we see in the Old Testament, that yes, Christ comes from Israel, He comes from ethnic Israel, but it is a shadow and the substance is something far greater. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 13, we'll just start in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, so those not part of ethnic Israel, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. One of the most, dis the most dismal place to be in all of human history is outside of the hope of God. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought uh, near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
And so this oneness, this unity that we see in the people of God in the Old Testament is ultimately a picture for the unity and the oneness that we have in Christ in the New Covenant. All of those who've looked to Christ in faith, as we say often, true Israel, as we see in Romans, it's this picture of unity, this picture of identity. And the identity that we have as God's people is not if we're from ethnic Israel, which means nothing, Paul says. But what means everything is if we are one in Christ, true Israel are all of those who have expressed the faith of Abraham in the person of Jesus. So we see this preservation of Israel's identity. We see the preservation of the law, which are both so important in Ezra's role in redemptive history. And then lastly, we see the foreshadowing of true restoration. As we think about the book of Ezra, in its role, its place in redemptive history, as it foreshadows, it points to true restoration. The restoration in Ezra foreshadows the true restoration done by Christ, both physically and spiritually. Spiritual restoration. Jesus makes His people new. He restores us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. Jesus restores His people. He doesn't restore us in the old way. He restores us new and better. He gives us a new life. The old man is dead. We, we recognized that last week with Brianna's baptism. And we saw a picture of that, of the old person dying, and the new person being raised up in the newness of Christ. Jesus restores His people. He gives a new heart and a new life. This is the promise. This is the hope of salvation, that the old us is gone and the new us is in Christ. But He also promises a physical restoration. We see the restoration of Jerusalem and we see the building of the altar and we see the building of the temple. We see the return of His people. We see the physical aspect of Jerusalem being rebuilt and restored. Our hope is not in that. Our hope is not in a physical city in that sense. But go me to Revelation 21, second to last chapter in the Bible. Revelation 21, first five verses. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who has seated, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So we see that Christ doesn't just have this spiritual restoration, but he will restore us even physically. He will restore us. He will give us a new place, a new home for all of eternity. And he is making all things new. We see the beauty and the need of Ezra in redemptive history through the preservation of the law to the preservation of Israel's identity and by foreshadowing Christ's true restoration, both
physically and spiritually. So as we conclude this morning, as we reflect on the book of Ezra, we see God's faithfulness to his people on full display through the restoration of Jerusalem, through the rebuilding of the altar and the temple, the return of God's people. They all point to a God who is actively involved in the renewal of his people in his covenant community. Ezra reminds us that the true reformation comes through God's word alone. Just as the Protestant Reformation demonstrated the same, we are reminded today that our spiritual well-being is dependent upon obedience to God's word. The role of Ezra in, uh, is evident in redemptive history. The preservation of the law of Israel's identity were necessary for the narrative of Jesus Christ, our ultimate redeemer. It is in Jesus we see the fulfillment of the law and the promises made to Israel. His life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection brought about true restoration. And he is still actively doing that. Not just in a new city, but in his new creation that he creates every single day through all of those who turn to him in faith and repentance. So as we end our time in Ezra, as we prepare to go on to Advent and continue in Nehemiah, let us remember the lessons of faithfulness the centrality of God's word, and the joy of being a part of God's redemptive plan. If you're a believer this morning, you are a part of that historic redemptive narrative looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. My prayer this morning for us is that our lives would reflect the restoration and the reformation that comes from God alone as we live each day in light of his grace and truth. Let's pray. Lord.